Hi, everyone. I'm going to, uh, we're just about to get it started, and I'm just going to not use the microphone for this introduction. Make it a little less awkward to pass between Steph and I. So uh, first, I uh, wanted to give a welcome to, to everyone, uh, and thank you for coming out tonight. Um, we are, this is Lit 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 number eight, and we're here tonight at Nanaimo Art Gallery uh, on uh, traditional Sunemu territory. And we also wanted to introduce ourselves a little bit. My name is Emma, and I am the curatorial intern here at Nanaimo Art Gallery, and I'm also co-coordinator of Lit Lit Lit, along here with my partner in crime, Stephanie. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, so just to give you a little bit of a rundown of what Lit 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 is exactly, it's a bi-monthly reading series and podcast that's based out of Vancouver that Steph and I have been running for uh, since 2015 now. April 2015. Yes, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're really excited to uh, be here tonight and partnering with the Nanaimo Art Gallery, uh, Art Lab, and Code Switching as well. Two of our readers tonight are part of Code Switching, which is our teen, our teen youth program, and it's a platform for uh, young, young people, young teens, to be able to come to the gallery and explore and talk about contemporary art and, and culture here. So we're really happy to have some of these uh, budding writers uh, as a part of our program tonight. Um, anything else you'd, uh, you've got in mind? That was great. Okay, cool. <laughs> so um, just a couple of things. We'll, I'll introduce quickly our readers tonight and the order that we're going to go in. So uh, tonight we have five readers. And the first reader is going to be Roger Farr, who's from Gabriela Island. Charlotte Zhang, who's from Nanaimo. Sonnet Labe from Nanaimo. Hamish Hardy from Nanaimo. And then Casey Wei, who is a uh, writer and artist and musician from Vancouver. So we're going to break it up a little bit and then take a quick little break uh, after Charlotte, who's going to be our second reader tonight. Um, just a couple of things before we get started. Just wanted to uh, kind of put it out there that Lit is supposed to be a open and free space for writers to be able to kind of explore their practice and there might be some explicit content in tonight's reading so we encourage you to practice an act of self-care if you feel the need to. Um, yeah, thanks to, again, Nanaimo Art Gallery, Art Lab, and Code Switching, and then especially to our readers and Steph and Eli, who's, who have been uh, very essential into making this event happen tonight. Yeah, so without further ado, <laughs> we've got uh, Roger, and then we're going to read some bios first. I'm going to let you read the bio. Roger's bio? Yeah. Okay. Roger Farr joined the English department at Capilano University full-time in 2004 and has been affiliated with the Creative Writing Culture and Technology and Liberal Studies BA programs. He's published two books of poetry, Surplus, 2006, and Means, 2012, a collection of prose poetry, a collaborative research project, and numerous articles and essays. From 2010 and 2013, he edited Q Books and is currently a contributing editor to the Capilano Review. He also edits the poetry and poetics journal, Parser. As a researcher, his project revolves around the relationship between literature, aesthetics, and radical social movements and everyday life. Excellent. Come on up, Roger. Thanks. And Hi, everybody. 
thanks to Emma and Stephanie Lit 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 and to the Nanaimo Art Gallery for inviting me to read. This is the first time I think I've read in Nanaimo. I've lived on Gabriola for 12 years. I've performed uh, Peshakusha a couple times here, but I've never read from my poems. Um, I'm going to read a couple things. Uh, I'll read some stuff from my second book, Means, uh, and from some new unpublished work. And the stuff from Means I'll read, uh, it's a collection of five long poems. Um, and each one deals with a different communication, technology communication media. Uh, there's a radio play in here, which would have been a good uh, choice for this evening, given that there's a transmitter somewhere. I'm not sure if it's <laughs> somewhere there's a transmitter. Um, and, uh, but the radio play is unperformable, so I will not read that. I cannot read that. Um, but I'll read a poem about television first. It's called Understanding, Understanding Television. Uh, each of these poems begins with a slightly top-heavy quotation from a dead Marxist. Um, the first one is from Raymond Williams, and it's just the line is just, the reiterated promise of exciting things to come if we stay. <clears throat> the world is held together by a vast network of channels, and when we watch these shows, we make it more than we think. Each channel coils around a channel. You can't remove one without changing every other unless you're so reclined to being a resourceful character like that Sonia on Survivor that the signal comes in clear if not distinct. Horizontal integration, I thought, meant couch lock, but near the end of the late night show, the protagonist, Dave, was so real, I imagined that even though I had turned it off, the image I paid attention to as part of my monthly bundle was still there. Don't! I tried to pull it, the cable, and everything moved. The phone went up. Access went up. Switching to digital brought the phone down, the cable up. By the end of house, one month cost $33 less than what he, Ernie Chip Douglas, said it would be, but more than it was historically when everything was black and white, transmission preceded content intended for reception only, limited to individual homes tied together in a bundle of separate wires, diffusing our problems by watching the programs we write and pay for, like property virgins and cops. Spread across the pages, the grid allows a week by week or follow a theme like nature or space, each with its own built-in natural flow. So if you miss a season like summer on the OC when she, Rachel Bilson, tried to save the chickens in season four, it's interrupted by a trip to the store to get the DVD or VOD allows a viewer to get up to speed, constructing a unique flow at the rate of $5 for three days or two for eight. At any rate, the flow is accessible in several sequences. Sequences at the flick of a switch can be canceled any time a half an hour later in Newfoundland. The shows unite people in distant places like the Middle East and Asia, but they, Gilmoreisms, need to avoid misunderstanding, like when that character 
Madeline Albright cuddled Rory in her dreams while at the same time, 2006, the TV was showing what amounted to Iraqi propaganda. I thought it was touching on Fox but disgusting on CBC and used the remote to cast my vote. But if you're a diehard fan, get the DVD with all the extras. It's well worth the $304.50. He... John McLean visited them, troops, in 2005 and was so baffled by the good things not being shown on TV, he's making a film about it, propaganda. Offering one million for info leading to the capture or killing of them, Osama, Ayman, and Abu. He, Bruce, is going to give those German terrorists a dose of their own medicine, pow, right in the kisser, tonight on Global. The network paid anywhere from three to 15 million, had to outbid enemy combatants in the entertainment markets for us to get this redacted as part of our bundles, but it's free if you use the old 4D TV, allows the flow to travel even more freely across the national borders or on an international or global scale, breaking up the public broadcasting monopoly, but the signal that is much clearer now, they, communication sectors, are collaborating to digitize everything and bring it, globe, closer together while we wait for whatever's coming on next. Um, seeing as we're facing an election, uh, which I don't mind saying I will not vote in, uh, I don't vote, I vote in referendums, I vote in municipal elections, but uh, as an anarchist I don't vote for uh, political parties. Um, we can talk about that afterwards if you like. Um, and a few years ago, I uh, I started thinking more carefully about um, uh, the way political parties often uh, try to legitimate themselves by uh, representing some specter or some concept of the people, like that they're somehow tuned into a certain people. Sometimes it's it's a specific class of people, but that somehow they're able to. Uh, Inter intermediate on behalf of a group of people. And it's interesting when you, when you sort of think about that, um, uh, that a political party actually doesn't act on behalf of a, of, a, of a people or a populace, but actually institutes a populace by claiming to represent them. So I'm gonna read a poem um, uh, called Transitional Demands. It's kind of a, uh, I guess what we used to call flarf a few years ago. So the, the text was uh, composed through uh, internet search, uh, looking at different uh, ways in which the word the people turned up uh, syntactically uh, in different places on the internet. And my goal here was to try to find out truly what the people want. Uh, of course, I have another quotation from a dead Marxist. <laughs> uh, to open this, this is um, Pierre Bourdieu from uh, Language and Symbolic Power. The spokesperson, is the person who, speaking about a group, speaking on behalf of a group, surreptitiously posits the existence of the group in question, institutes the group through that magical operation which is inherent in any act of naming. It is what the people want in a very literal sense. What the people want is a more thorough conversation on reproductive health issues. The people want a worthy successor because it is what the people want. What the people want is a united front of all progressive forces. The people want an app equivalent to shop savvy. 
biased news is not what the people want. The people want another invasion. Clean diesel is what the people want. What the people want is a way of keeping in touch with what matters to people today. Contrary to what you may believe, this is not what the people want. Communism is not what the people want. Credit card processing is what the people want. The people want unpredictable biological children. What the people want is bacon. The people want chicken. What the people want is candor. The people want application software. Every poll shows that this is not what the people want. Free higher education is what the people want. Growth is not what the people want. The people want cold beer and hot showers. The people want usable devices. What the people want is chicken. He does so because it is what the people want. The people want for their team to reach the finals. He is not what the people want. What the people want is a door. I can say and know that this is not what the people want. The people want for us to stop having these rhetorical wars and start solving the problem. I sincerely believe that lasting peace is what the people want. I think this is what the people want. If a well-designed and quirky sportswear is what the people want, then let's give it to them. <laughs> the people want invariably the same as what the person using the phrase wants. What the people want is for our laws against gambling to be uniformly enforced. The people want very simple things. What the people want is for you to try. The people want to get rid of uh, Ahmadinejad because they believe that his majority is a fraud. It gives them greater confidence to just continue lying that this is what the people want. It is not what the people want. The people want the protests to end. What the people want is forever secondary to what the movers and shakers want. The people want to look at stuff. The people want more effective selling time with better leads that have high odds of converting into pipeline opportunities. It may be a little too risky to place our faith in some dialectical claim that this is not what the people want. Legislation is not what the people want. Of course, it is dangerous to propitiate violence, but armed conflict is what the people want. Okay, I put that in there. <laughs> Peace of mind is what the people want. People never get the government they deserve because government is not what people want. What the people want is health services that are accessible. What the people want is irrelevant, and I'm not sure if it's even salvageable. The people want not often what we give in our information and services. The people want to reduce the malicious abuse at all levels. The people want what our forebears wanted. The people want widescreen DVDs. Right now, it is not what the people want. The left always thinks that they know what is best for the country while refusing to accept that what they want is not what the people want. The people want a revolution. The people want peace. What the people want is not always difficult. The people want a government that obeys the law. Perhaps the current system of self-serving professional politicians and ambitious lawyers really is what the people want. The people want a real debate on the subject. The PNG Community Coalition Against Corruption says that this is what the people want. The spending in this bill is not what the people want. The health reform bill is not what the people want. What the people want is not taken into consideration. This is not what the people want. This is what the people want. The people want similar unanimity for the solution of their problems. This is what the people want. Jingle, if you will. This kind of sudden change in Iran is not what the people want. The people want what simply is reasonable. What the people want is simple. The landscape is what the people want. To me, that's not true. That's not what the people want. The people want to see a mask over her face. 
Too much reality is not what the people want. The people want some deal stitched behind closed doors without the consent of the British. What the people want is a single-payer Medicare for all coverage. We have to limit the power of the trade unions because that is what the people want. What is popular is what the people want. The people want someone to listen. The people want someone who will be there for them no matter what. What is important is what the people want. What Team Obama is doing is not what the people want. The people want the key to having a good business. Despite over 90% public disapproval, it goes without saying that this is not what the people want. After all, this is what the people want. Uh, so I mentioned I'd been living on Gabriola for 12 years, and um, uh, I started writing a poem about uh, Vancouver in 1997, and it was very much rooted in at the time in um, my interest in the work of the Situationist International, and in particular their uh, work, which I, I have sort of a different relation to now, um, around psychogeography and walking cities and trying to experience cities in new ways, sort of freed up from the usual way we move through urban space. Um, so I started that poem in 1997 and worked on it and then I just couldn't write it. I kind of put it away and I returned to the material uh, about a decade later, 11 years later, um, and just I was thinking about this poem for tonight just given some of the concerns of the broadcast archipelago and living on an island and I realized later that I wasn't able to write about cities until I'd left and I could kind of see it, you know, it's like you can't see the forest for the trees. And so having left the city, I felt like I was able to return to that material. And so I'm working on a, um, a long poem, a, a book, um, which right now is just called 604. And I'll just read the first part of this. Uh, it's about 11 pages. One, liquidity. Did you feel that surge spread across the room, the city, the sector, Monday morning, current rising softly to a foaming squirt over the precincts, up against the wall, every body open and quivering despite the security presence, the infrastructure, losing contour, losing investors, losing coherency, seeping at last into the gaping ear of the social body? I did. I received the call when I stepped across Venables at Clark, following a diagonal line like all the other commodities circulating aimlessly. I drifted along the corrugated steel walls, sun burning every body, every building, every form, cash exploding from the crowns of distant towers occupied by the rentiers in this hemopolis of arteries and conduits branching out centrifugally. Day, bro day broke over the grid of inputs, outputs, pipelines, fiber optic cables, electrodes. The citizens looked scorched and picked over as they transited through the subway tunnels into the pits. The air was crisp and material. The fluorescent glare illuminating the check cashing outlet brought the pallid face of austerity into view. The deeply etched scowl, eyes darting, fingers twitching, never enough, never enough, never enough. Immigration goons patrolled the entrances at the periphery while snipers positioned themselves tactically behind the billboards. Aerial surveillance, rigid architectural controls, and yet my passage between sectors was fluid as the debt relation that governed it. They are making a film, and these are the extras. The script is based on a poem by Nietzsche called Schuld. 
I paused on the viaduct to petition the souls of those who died when their neighborhood was flooded by a violent stream of capital during a previous cycle of struggle. Fear death by finance. Such lessons of history bore down upon me as I surveyed the landscape for signs of the raging stream, the undercurrent, the urgency tunneling between, beneath this unseated land. Derelict buildings tilted dramatically into an eroding riverbed while municipal road crews labored to repair the damaged infrastructure. My eyes scanned horizontally across the metropolis before gazing vertically into its past. Shipping containers moved east and west without obstruction. Today, the surfaces of ascent appear smooth and dry. Tomorrow will be a sequel. Under the cranes, the citizen dreams itself a protagonist signing land title papers in a parking lot on the east side, stalks ripening in the temperate rain. At the moment of contact, this city swallowed its own imago. The dead conjured the living, and the living conjured a utopia of glass. I crossed the street and entered a receding alley. The world drifted away. It seemed I was the only pedestrian in a corridor delineated by garbage and recycling bins. On every surface, a riot of ciphers and slogans, passwords, insults, spells, provided Luddic commentary on the internal contradictions of the structure that enclosed me. The names of local snitches were on display. Educated stencil artists had left their meta-commentary too, but what delayed my eye were the almost invisible instructions on how to stay alive, how to live during a period of civil war. Ahead of me, the mass of commuters and customers shuffled back and forth across the aperture at the end of the lane. Behind me, the course extended down a hill and evaporated. I found myself caught between two fates, move forward and engage the crowd, or turn and withdraw into quiet contemplation. This inertia was overcome by velocity. I joined the others by force of current, and at that moment recalled a passage by Gleek. Quote, Any liquid or gas is a collection of individual bits. If each piece moved independently, then the fluid would have infinitely many possibilities but each particle does not move independently. Its motion depends very much on the motion of its neighbors. Then another by Eberhardt on leading two lives, one full of adventure that belongs in the desert, another of calm and restful thought far away from all that might interfere with it. I entered a park and saw a young woman with a Marseille deck spread across a lilac cloth. I kneeled before her and chose three cards. You are at a crossroads alone. You are a hermit walking with your back turned to the future. You cannot see your way. Theory has failed you, and so has the aesthetic, dulled down by data and entertainment. Why do you look to the past? History is a nightmare that cannot help you now. You must become what you hate and destroy what you love, an emperor. Make physical changes, refuse work, take command of your life. Your project will require great strength. In your meager attempts to oppose authority, you've lost your own potential. Embrace your fighting spirit. Affirm the value of violence as the root of all power. Two. Dream Reels. 
city of speculation under a digital sky, <clears throat> borderless ghetto of addiction and betrayal, dream of dreadful night. I was in search of an exit. The taxis and buses would not stop. Misshapen bodies wandered in every direction, drugged and confrontational. I tried to use my phone, but it was locked in a game I did not understand. My friends and lovers had abandoned me. At exactly 3 a.m., the century was still washed in an oily industrial twilight. Postcard quality panopticism, yet all the techniques had failed to control the pageant these mutoid figures made. Nothing rationalized, surveyed, designed, approved, derelict tenements spilling fresh corpses into the streets belonging to the black market. A single cop wandering stupid and disheveled with a target on his head. This must have been day residue, the last instance of an unfolding reciprocal relationship between several sites but mediated by the news. I was in Baltimore, Athens, Baton Rouge, Dallas, London, Oakland, Cairo, Vancouver, keeping my dream notes on repressed collective desire. In retrospect, I see all the usual phantasms were there. Benjamin's curtains falling and filling in the wind, Katib's overcoat on the back of the door, Whale's copy of the Iliad on the desk beside a cup belonging to Villon. Heaps of furniture tossed from the balcony smoldered in the alley below. On the corner, a woman stood with a single coin in her outstretched hand as the river surged before her. Members of a local triad directed the scene from a parked car. From this refuse, I derived my heroic subjects, not from the multitude as such. I believed it was my task to metabolize, not to document or, or arbitrate the terrain. The ghetto river rushed violently through the financial district, carving, shaping, burrowing past a shopping center, fringed with high-rises down into a vast reservoir of shit. The air was sour and stagnant. Children and persons without papers fished from the edges of the cisterns, dredging up evidence of the familiar dispositifs, as well as cigarette butts, pens, obsolete navigational devices, computers, cellular phones, all the goods and services that keep us in our sectors. The promise of beauty was being destroyed block by block, every flimsy tower, every intimacy, every map, every clock bending to the urge of the 20th century, then snapping at the base. In another dream, I found myself on a bus shooting footage of a pre-conceptualist Vancouver for a documentary film. It was an encyclopedia of cliched cinematic objects reeling by in anticipation of the speed to come. Trees, mountains, trees, mountains, totem pole, totem pole, first narrows, the fountain in the park, pedestrians crossing and crossing again at an intersection in the center of the city. It was lunch hour in 1973. Buskers busked on every corner. Chinatown was still populated. Cowboys and Indians informed the fashions and behaviors of the new counterculture while tankers oozed bunker oil into the shores. This was the landscape of my reveries. A strange desire urged my mind to banish as irregular all organic life, and I was pleased with what my lens had done. I watched this film and saw the intoxicating monotony of glass, water, steel, and slate, endless staircases and parking lots joining to form a long labyrinth which led to a vast plaza. The fountains there were gushing silicon and sweat. 
Their heavy cataracts, like curtains, did not fall as liquid should, but hung frozen, reified in the conditioned air, while neutered figures with elongated breasts gazed at the clarity of their reflections in the display. Groves of security cameras, not trees, fringed the deep pool where nothing stirred except the flickering coins amassing at its base. I felt compelled to redirect the waters that fed this scene, so I made the water course under another culvert, and every color, every surface became prismatic. But when I woke, my mind bright with flame, I saw immediately the cheap and shabby room I had rented, and the facts of my dislocated being came flowing back into my mind. The sirens, the screams on the streets under a violet sky, the rain bearing down upon a lethargic, overvalued city. Note, to dream this way is to admit at last that we cannot accept our fate. Three, it's the last section. It's a shorter one, I'm not finished. Flesh passages. Our thinking is debris born by a torrent, but we cannot say if the city was built to channel a flow of blood or water or semen or cash or whether this metaphor, this metabolism, has already run its course. Still, I saw the warm bodies emerging from their incubators and drifting through the ducts with a ripening urgency and resentment. Some of us, I noticed, were slender, tattooed brunettes in camouflage and tight black denim, tawny beards fringing our lips. Into our orifices, we inserted anatomies, instruments, prosthetics, words, in defiance, in celebration of every taboo, every shame, every code, every father. Elevators departing from the carpeted foyers of the high-rises lead to apartments decorated in cocaine. From this height, I see everything except the end of the line, the districts located beyond the east-west paradigm, the migrant desires that arrive and depart with such certainty, the zones of opacity that vanish under even the softest of external powers. This was a libertine's war room, partners swapping each other out for strangers, slaves being whipped with ersatz phalluses, husbands retreating to the corners, pressing their khaki asses hard against the cage while the blindfolded b-girls poked at the furniture. Bylaw enforcement officers dole out punishments for failure to use safe words. The blue light of hundreds of surveillance cameras flash in some of the darker quadrants of the apartment, and yet it seems this whole performance is being staged entirely for the pleasure of the actors, not the planners, whose autoeroticism is derived from the contemplation of a single painting, a lewd image of a walled city undergoing, undergoing reconstructive surgery in a day clinic in Yaletown. I exit through the double French doors off the pool room and find myself on a subway platform among a milieu of fellow travelers on a line of flight away from the circuits of exchange. We undress each other and begin to play while the subway plunges beneath the pavement to follow, as all subterranean passages do, a path of least resistance to the sea. Bodies lost their armor. I surveyed the full arc of a spine, shuddered in the alcove of soft pink tissue, felt the blood-hardened organs swelling and driving as every ass, every cock, every pussy, every mouth was expropriated and made common for a brief moment of time. 
We disembarked among a zone of industrial ruins that lay before the beach. Everywhere, the remainders of the Anthropocene accumulated formed a vast assemblage that reminded us of something we saw in a film. As we probed this dystopia, we caught glimpses of tiny screens flashing inside the decomposing chassis strewn redundantly among lush strands of nettles, blackberries, and alder. How to theorize this? How to wreck a wreckage? I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks, Roger. Okay, so next up, uh, we've got Charlotte Jong is an emerging artist, writer, and filmmaker based in Nanaimo, BC, who is completing her final year of high school. She is involved with the Nanaimo Art Gallery in the Code Switching Collective and participated in the exhibition Ron Tran, Somewhat Mine, a Nanaimo Retrospective in 2016. This past November, Zhang was selected as the winner of VISFF's new pitch of flick contest that will allow her to realize her script under the mentorship of Night Studio Productions. And more recently, she published an essay titled The Power in Oni Magazine. Charlotte. Um, I just, okay, sorry. I want to thank uh, Emma and Steph and also the Nanaimo Art Gallery for giving me this opportunity to read. And I'll just be reading a short story that I wrote that does not have a title yet. It happened before my aggressive reinvention as not one of those Asian girls, before I painstakingly and illegally downloaded Pixies albums onto a cracked iPod touch that had seen better days and learned to do my eyeliner in such a fashion that was never meant for monolids and by afternoon was always reduced to nothing more than oily black smears. I anticipated the day when someone somewhere might peel away the whole carefully crafted act like a plastic wrapper and realize I was no quirky, charming outlier, but the very same as all the funny foreigners in the ethnic section of the supermarket, whose mere presence triggers a pang of resentment and a muttered comment about buying up all the real estate. You should know by now that no amount of jaded cool or knowledge of alt-rock will save you from any of it. But you should also understand that it is always much more exciting to be unknowable when there is nothing more detestable than the sensation of eyes not looking so much as landing on you and then flickering away with a sort of dull recognition. How shameful is it to be so easily solved? To have to wonder what part of you gave it all away? July throbbed that year with an anxious heat, pressing sweat from all the bodies it happened to envelop. On the most aimless of days, which is most of them, I sat in my backyard under the shade of a lanky tree reading shitty Dean Koontz's I got for free at a yard sale. The characters in these stories were almost always unbearable, but I kept reading because I accepted it must have been part of their charm, the way we nod at people who laugh after they say, I'm so mean, and husbands who complain about their wives on Saturday nights. I would stay reading in the same position until my sweaty thighs stuck to the plastic chair and the sky had started bleeding purple. In the evenings, the sound of the news channel drifted lazily through the screen door just before the mosquitoes descended. I heard about all sorts of disasters this way. It seemed that life would always be very eventful, and I wished I could be asleep for more of it. This is how I first heard about Craigslist. Behind the screen door, a woman with blonde helmet hair and a grating voice detailed the grisly murder conducted through the site in Montreal. I won't elaborate on the details because everyone knows which one I'm talking about, and I hate thinking about it for too long. 
But my mother had shook her head at the idea of it, muttered something about how horrible it was and what a shame that the victim was Chinese too. It appeared to me like a string, their tenuously shared bond that was held together only by the ferocity of their love and the agony of wanting better in a country where they had convinced themselves only good things could happen. I asked my mother that night what she would do if I died and she replied in a flat voice that she would die too. I took all the necessary steps, of course. I regularly carried out rituals like leaving a strand of my hair in every car I rode in that was not my own in case I was to be senselessly murdered by the driver and the police needed DNA evidence to crack the case. I made sure to avoid being alone with my friends' fathers and to speak to men brusquely so they would never get wrong ideas of any kind. I kept expecting that the minute I softened my grip, my life would quickly become the backstory of an especially gruesome Forensic Files episode. The burn of this near-constant dread was so familiar that I forgot where it actually begun, only that it persisted in waves. I knew there were points I was trying to make to myself, but they floated disconnected, waiting to be frightened into formation. I told myself not to do it because it might make things worse somehow by opening a door that wouldn't close again, but curiosity gnawed at me all day until I caved and put sweaty hands to keyboard. Most of the personal ads bored me. I was no longer impressed by sex nor loneliness in the form of desperately casual propositions, though seeing raw longing committed to text was novel to me. I waited to catch a glimpse of something rotten in the making, a seed that had not yet sprouted. It was under misconnections, easily forgotten. The post read as followed. Want to fuck you, Red. See you naked in your window. I want to see your face when I fuck your tight little Asian pussy. It was almost romantic. The poster had wanted Red, whoever she was, so badly that it strangled the words and left them sparse and twisted. I wondered what it felt like to want someone like this. It must not have been very pleasant. I wondered if the poster thought this outburst was evidence of his undying devotion, that he dreamed about Red seeing the post and realizing that the one for her was behind her window all this time. I'd certainly never been wanted like this. I thought about what Red might look like, maybe like the ads for those seeking Asian girlfriends that came up on sites I knew I wasn't supposed to be on, as pale and slight as a sliver of early morning light slipping between the curtains just so. And what was more intoxicating to imagine was that the person who wrote this existed, that he moved about this life with me suspecting but never fully knowing. Like flies on fly tape, the thoughts stuck in my head over and over until I could think of nothing else. I clicked reply. I started a fresh email. Hello, I wrote. I'm Red. I'm so flattered you feel this way. Let's meet. I arrived at the mall early. I brought with me a pocket knife I stole from my brother and $2.25 for the bus ride home. I was invincible this way, like a predator in the reeds. I needed nothing and no one else. Whenever I closed my eyes, I could see the words on the screen. Saturday, 11 a.m., wearing a blue jacket and a pixie's shirt, under the big clock in the food court. I could see the back of a blue jacket already lumbering under the clock when I arrived and my breath caught in my throat. I kept my safe distance, kept him in the corner of my eye. He was deceptively normal looking, a swath of coarse blonde hair and ruddy cheeks. It was hard to tell what age he was, but there was a sort of fragility to the slump of his shoulders and the dramatic sag of the ass of his khakis. He settled at an empty table nearby, and I sat too, reflexively. I pretended we were marionettes controlled by the same person, moving towards the same thing. We scratched our noses. We jiggled our legs. He checked his blackberry, and I stared at the table. 
What bubbled between us was electric, ready to burst, but only I could feel it. I told myself I could walk over there right now. I've spent the entirety of a short lifetime avoiding men like this, lonely men who wanted what they could not have, but I had the power to offer myself up like bait. I could skip to the ending as easily as falling asleep. He caught me looking at him and stared back. His phone went dim in his hands. His mouth fell open slightly, as though he had something to say, but it escaped him before he could will it into words. My neck was suddenly frozen in its place. It would take great effort to move it again. This was the closest I was ever going to get. And what I hated most of all, even to this day, is how much I still want that same look of surprise, that pleasant shock that I was me and I sat here and breathed and existed. I wanted it again and again and again, amplified, for once to be the drowning bright of the headlights and not the deer. The moment ended rather abruptly when, I, when he realized I was not who he was looking for, but the damage had already been done. I know now that there are very few ways to be desired, some of them dangerous and some of them empty. Very often they are both. I was never going to be wanted in the white girl way, handled with a sort of sacred poetry. Maybe all I could hope for was being looked at through windows. Maybe there is, there is no way to really protect yourself from anything. Maybe everyone already thinks they know what you'll do next, and even doing the opposite would mean losing because you knew about the rules in the first place. Maybe if we were all different, or I didn't live here, or I said the right things instead of nothing at all. After 45 minutes exactly, he got up. The sound of his chair scraping the linoleum pierced the clamor of the Saturday crowd with such severity that I felt the vibration of it crawl all the way up my back. He did one more hopeful sweep of the food court before dipping his head in resignation and walking away. I waited until he disappeared before letting my knees touch in a brief prayer. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, so I think we're just gonna take a quick break now, about 10 minutes. Um, I should mention that we've got a bar over here on the side with drinks and water as well. And um, I also wanted to mention that Steph uh, has brought some lit, 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 lit chat books tonight, which are or transcriptions of previous lit readings that we've done. So uh, you're welcome to check them out over there. They're $5 each and uh, Casey Way, who's also one of our readers tonight, has brought some of her magazines as well, um, Agony Club. So those are on the table, and I would encourage you to go check them out as well. Those are 15 apiece, and then there's buttons for a dollar. Uh, we'll reconvene in 10 minutes. Thank you. Hello, we're going to get started on part two now. <laughs> Please take your seats um, and, you know, the rest. All that stuff. Okay, so next we're going to have Sonnet. Love it. Am I saying that right? Okay. Read. Sonnet is the author of A Strange Relief and 
Kalarno. Am I saying that right? Yep. Okay. <laughs> and was the 2014 guest editor of Best Canadian Poetry. Her chapbook, Anima Canadensis, mm-hmm. was published by Junction Books in 2016. I'm reading into the mic. Yeah, you're okay, doing great. Right. Carry on. Poems from her new project. Sonnets Shakespeare, in which she writes over all of 154 of Shakespeare's sonnets, appear in Best American Experimental Writing 2016. Sonnets Shakespeare will come out with McClelland and Stewart in 2018. Labe lives in Vancouver Island and is a professor of creative writing and English at Vancouver Island University. Thanks a lot. Okay. Should I be should I be reading into the if mic? If you want to, up to you. Well, for recording purposes sure. or whatever. Uh, this is not going to fall, I don't think. Um, shout out to the Snanaima people, uh, on whose land we're um, hanging out, and thank you to the Nanaimo Art Gallery for having me. Thank you to Steph and to uh, Emma and to Jesse for having me. Um, I am going to read from my current project that I am rushing and rushing to finish. It's 154 poems and it's really, it has taken me about four years to write 110 of them and my editor's like, where's your manuscript? Like right now, she's asking for it. So I'm, I am freaking out a little bit and I'm hoping that I can write 40 more of these within the next two months. So the... Um, a little bit about the project. Um, so my name, Sonnet, uh, I did not pick. It is, I've been, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't pick it. My dad's name is Jason. My mother's name is Janet. They take S-O-N from Jason and N-E-T from Janet and put it together and made Sonnet. And so, like, compelled me to a life of being interested in wordplay and, uh, and reading Shakespeare when I was young because it was the only thing that had my name on it, right? <laughs> like no toothbrushes, no mugs, no Coke bottles, no whatever, right? Um, so I stayed away from sonnets, as you can imagine, for quite a while when I started writing poetry just because. Uh, and then after, after a bit, um, when I conceived of this project, uh, I was like, oh, I can use it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this project comes a little bit out of my, my work writing about Ronald Johnson, an American poet for my PhD. Ronald Johnson did erasure poetry, if you're at all familiar with, with that way of making poetry. It comes out of the found poetry tradition where you're working with existing texts. And um, so Ronald Johnson was one of the first to make a book out of uh, taking another person's text and erasing bits of it to leave just parts behind, and that that would be his his composition. He took the first four books of Paradise Lost, erased chunks, and made ratty O's, and, and then it went from there. And it's become pretty, blackout poetry and erasure poetry had a little bit of, or is enjoying a bit of a, res, like a revival, I'd say in the past decade or so, people have been playing with it, in part because it's such a visual form and it, and it travels well on the internet. Um, the criticism that I was reading about uh, about erasure poetry, about Ronald Johnson's, and a bunch of American poets, the few American poets who had taken it up, um, focused on the process of doing that as a way of 
uh, being like a corrosive, um, a corrosive force on the original text that, that like works on the text to reveal some kind of underlying texture. Or they would talk about it as a composting of the original text to like release the, another poem that was inside. And the obvious um, resonances with editing and deleting and censorship were actually not taken up in the criticism at all, which I found really strange. Um, so interestingly, though, uh, poets like Nurbese Philip and Shane Rhodes and Jordan Abel, all Canadian poets, have been using erasure in, uh, in ways that actually speak to an erasure poetry having those resonances of editing and um, deletion and censorship. So um, Nurbese Philip has worked with the documents, the legal documents surrounding the case um, where slaves were thrown overboard of the Zong ship. Um, and there was a case where like, somebody wanted to claim insurance because they were like, that was our property. And the shipping company was like, yeah, but... And there, so it was a fight over property. So she took, she's taken that document and done erasures on it um, to speak of the unspeakable like pain of black bodies that's going on in that in that uh, in that legal document that erases the humanity of the people that were involved. They were treated as property by that document. And both Shane Rhodes and Jordan Abel work with um, Canadian treaty documents around and the Indian Act. So I um, my background, my ethnic background, um, is French Canadian on one side and Guyanese on the other, and Guyanese Indo and Afro Guyanese. Um, so, on the one side, uh, like, I'd say my identity is informed by, by British colonialism in a, certain, in a certain way, right? It's British Guyana that my mom is from. And then on the other side, um, my dad was born in northern Ontario, my grandparents were born outside of Montreal, and so my dad was born speaking only French. And only through like painful assimilation in northern Ontario towns was he um, like beaten into speaking English, basically. But the whole family was assimilated um, by just cultural pressures. And um, I don't know, they didn't really protect me from any of those <laughs> stories when I was little. So um, I was very aware of um, I was very aware of racial pressures, but also very aware of like language pressures. And the way that I'm like, wow, you know, that's a shame. Like we all speak to each other in English, but we're like, we're Frank, we're French Canadian. Like my grandmother speaks in this really um, thick French Canadian accent, but she speaks English to us. So all of that. Uh, so I'm, I'm laying out like the poetry stuff that I was thinking about and some of my personal experience. And I thought, okay, assimilation and erasure to me are, you know, resonate against each other. And what could I do? poetically as a, as a procedure that um, shows my understanding of how you don't necessarily just have to delete to erase a culture, to erase a language, to erase a people. You can just surround them until, you know, until there are so many of you that there are not as many of them and effectively the them don't get seen anymore. And I think that's a pretty fair, fair way of describing how uh, European culture has assimilated and taken over and just sort of populated um, Canada, North America, and taken the space up of, um, of indigenous peoples and told stories that say that they're not there. 
right, when they're there. But just crowd, crowd people out until their language is not heard um, and the people are not seen in certain ways. Um, but obviously they're very much still here. So my process, I thought I, I decided that, and plus, that plus I was a little bit tired of writing from a margin. I was tired of being the brown girl that was writing, like being like, I'm out here, you're over here, mainstream voice, ear that I need to talk to, uh, please hear me, right? From a place of sort of victim or hurt. And I was like, what if I, what if I, um, explore my own ability to be the person who's doing the erasing, you know? And I don't even think that I've, I'm fully really doing that like in a totally visceral way because it's actually quite hard, right? Like the ways in which this book has started to take up rape is really quite difficult, <laughs> I think. And so to go back and be like, yeah, but Sonnet, then you are the rapist in this situation. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's fucked. But so what, what, uh, what I did was I approached the, um, the page that Shakespeare's text is on, the white page, as though it is territory that I mean to inhabit. I'm like, I want to be on that page. That's some prime real estate where Shakespeare's page is. All eyes are on that page. I want to be on that page. I want to dominate that page. So... I just, I just decide that I am going to occupy that page and all I do is I just put my letters around the Shakespeare letters until it's my voice that you hear, not his. But all of his letters are still there. I don't delete any of them, I just surround them. So to give you an example, if the first word of Shakespeare's sonnet was the, T-H-E, I could put an M-O here and an R here, and my first word could be mother. So there's the the in there, but you only read mother. Or I could put an R here and another E here, and I could have my first word be three. Right? So, um, so my poems are prose poems that are much longer than the original sonnet. They just sit as a, as a block on the page, and the whole... the the entire Shakespeare sonnet sits within them. So they're very, they're very painstaking and uh, nitpicky and like totally appeal to my anal um, nature when it comes to putting language on the page. Uh, okay, so the first one I'll read uh, to you is XLVIII, which is 48. The original Shakespeare sonnet. Um, for this one, I'll read the whole Shakespeare sonnet, and then I'll read you mine. Okay. Um, all right. So Shakespeare's sonnet 48 is as follows. How careful was I when I took my way each trifle under truest bars to thrust, that to my use it might unused stay from hands of falsehood in sure wards of trust. But thou, to whom my jewels trifles are, most worthy comfort, now my greatest grief, thou, best of dearest, and mine only care, are left the prey of every vulgar thief. Thee I have not locked up in any chest, save where thou art not, though I feel thou art within the gentle closure of my breast, from whence at pleasure thou mayst come and part. And even thence thou wilt be stolen, I fear, for truth proves thievish for a prize so dear. 
How careful must walkers be if black when walking? Too many freaking black walkers are history. Not for treacheries, but trifles are men under terrorful arrests bars too often thrust. The atmosphere of terror for many results less from international malicious fighting words or unsuspected domestic betrayers and more from command followers, police, who foster falsehood instead of understanding they are wards of trust. Bullying sergeant's authority comes out of laws that once named some men property. Jewish people understand how race influences target embodiment, how states with low morale create antipathy and comfort landowners by naming an enemy. Americans' greatest grief wants to buy a house, to obey stop signs, to find a life partner. The worst American diminishment only cares to signal before turning left, to be the potential prey of one slavery-mouthed, vulgar, trigger-happy officer's enforcement, to achieve greatness or have it thrust upon him, to not get locked up in any charlatan investments, to leave well enough alone. Race is a thought the America's plantations cotton-mouthed, a vicious negging that is felt as repellent. If you aren't recognized within the gentleman's enclosure of supremacy, brother, arrests for random whatever are at their convenience. Only at their pleasure, breather, may you respectfully come, say sir, and maybe disappear. Trayvon, Dante, Victor, Walter, Tony, Tamir, Michael, and Eric, and Jordan should be on this list now, you are on a list of shot unarmed on Gawker. I looked you up. Today, a badge was let off for killing Rakia. What fear your form of truth proves? Feeling threatened is evidence video won't show. Fuck the police, said Dre, surprise, his smile could be so disarming. Okay. Uh, 109, this one is by request, uh, and I should say I made a mistake, so what I do is I like, I've got the Gutenberg e-text of, of Shakespeare and I just like, I cut and paste the, the text into my workspace and I work with it. I made a mistake twice and cut and paste the wrong poem and like took my three weeks to write one of them and then went to like go and do the next one and I was like, oh. Uh, I had written the whole poem over the wrong Shakespeare text that I had already done a poem for. Erk. So somehow, in some way, I'm going to find a way to use those. But this is the right one. 109 that starts with, Oh, never say that I was false of heart, though absence seemed to my flame to qualify. And it ends with the lines, for nothing this wide universe I call, save thou, my rose, in it thou art my all. And I think that there's some people in the audience who might um, correct my pronunciation if I get this wrong, if I get some of these wrong. Pokemon evolution promised transition. 
Bulbasaur's morph to Ivysaur, Squirtle's change to Indigo War Turtle, Charmander's flame-led rise into fiery Carmeleon. Spiro trained its short wings until frightful Fero's beak manifested. Green Caterpie shed itself to become hard Metapod's chrysalis, so Butterfree could one day emerge to quiver dance and flutter toxic fairy dust. As easy as Meowth might ripen from money scrounger to jewel foreheaded Persian, our transformation from immaturity to something more powerful. We crushed on optimistic Ash, on Iris, Cynthia, Misty, or Brock, or on Serena in her straw hat. Their friendships, boys with girls, trained our battling hearts. Unsupervised for many hours, we mated monster fellows, inventing offspring off the official inventory. Kangashkan sexed Lickitung to make Schlickimum a threatening mother salivator. Wily Ninetales did Foratress's bumpy protrusions and gave birth to Ninjunk, a steel-plated fox. I caught Shelmet, Vileplume, Noctowl, Polyrath, and Growlithe. Growlithe? Growlithe. I caught Grimer, Execute, Chansey, Gyrados, Gyrados, and Ferrothorn, aiming at mastery. As they leveled up, Clefable's disarming voice grew more accurate. Furfru's charm and doll eyes dazed more attacks. Such feminine maneuvers I bred into males like Volbeat or Throw, so thugs like Hitmonchan spritzed Misty Terrain or Twinkle Tackle on their foes. Creatures ascribed genders felt fictional like fluid performabilities that could be substituted or changed at will, like kinds of damage. Boy or girl state, about as random as Ditto's shape. That's how we played it, coding our little mods into the Polka franchise. Pocket monsters of status legendary embodied sexuality, but as non-binary and genderless, fantastic and normal. Like a vulnerable female Victorian exposed by quaint home botanizing to natural plant hermaphroditity, wait, hermaphroditity, was I informed by Fionnese form. Last July, Googlers searched for Pokemon Go more than for internet porn. <laughs> Gotta catch Pikachu's yellow-tailed devotion, that universal electric animal pull. See you at the convention where youth transform into sexy Umbreons and sexy Nidorini at the location augmented with characters made up by the real world. Okie dokie. Uh, I spent a long time explaining. How are we doing for time? One more or two more? All right, I'll try to do it fast. Okay, uh, okay, 83, I never saw that you did painting need and therefore to your fair no painting set. And then it ends, there lives more life in one of your fair eyes than both your poets in rival praise, than both your poets can in praise devise. Rainforest verdant, sawtoothed edged Salal at your hand's height, drops of jade glinting. Now green cut diamonds there underfoot, water droplets. Rosy pussy toes push rose feathered white tufts from green florets. Pointed alpine firs 
just rising above coastal forest, stir. I found, or thought I found, my own understanding in the viridian exteriors of the unseated, the bathmic subarborescent tenderness of a poet's mind is equilibrated under the dendrites that green here. Forests have instincts like global positioning systems. To walk under their report to atmospheres and satellites is to you yourself become instrumental, geotactic, sexed with plants. Narrow-leaved owl clover, maiden pink, Arctic eyebright. Salishan knows their information well, far better than any modernist quietude will. Douglas water hemlock to Douglas maple to Douglas hawthorn, a forest translated by botanists speaking of worth. What worth there is in you, Douglas can't English. You grow in this unrelinquished silence the fronds of your mentality sinking with the aspen colony, its underground idiom, sprout-tongued. White spruce, short-spur sea blush, sitka alder, false bindweed, common rush. The forest's glory begat halcaminum, a language dumb foreigners misheard. My interpretation of rainforest says beautiful by being mute or whispering Iomech Gat. Leafy liverworts, downy veilworts under cloud, light drizzle veils the cliff fern and brings out the malachite green of mossy branches. The forest lives more life with me in it, one solemn life, walking the territory of resource fairy tales. Ayotlum, say the plant brothers to scraggy consciousness. Larix occidentalis is all our poets can in rival praise devise. Okay, and so the last one um, I'll read to you. Five of these, um, as you can sort of sort of tell, there's like race and race and and land and environment and colonization are the themes of of this of the content, not just the the process. So, um, as a settler, that's like poses some problems, some challenges. So five of these uh, have the calls, the 94 calls to action woven through them, um, 84 to 88. And so if you're familiar with the 94 calls to action, as a, as a policy document, it's actually quite cleanly written and lovely. So uh, what you need to know for this one, this, this, so this poem will have the first 17 of the 94 calls to action. Um, Encha una is a car is a carrier saying, meaning she she or he also lives, but he or she also lives. But it means it reminds us to respect others and be willing to recognize different perspectives. Kweachi sita means make it so it will be ready. It's Cree. Witamok is Cree for tell it and tell about it. Mash uh, Kodewashk is Ojibwe for sage, and Gijik is uh, Ojibwe for cedar. And Deke Netle Wena Di Lecha is Dogrib, which is the wrong word for this language now. I'm sorry, I forget what I'm supposed to call Dogrib. Um, so that is 
that's the phrase for I write it down so I don't forget it. This commission's report is in the public domain. It says almost as much as our eyes, which can say more than this. To repair Canada, the past residential internment strategies that you alone are guilty of, 94 bids. One, fewer of our children in government's care. Two, collect and publish findings yearly on kids in the system, Métis, Inuit, First Nations. Three, use Jordan's principle. Four, set the standard for woke laws on child custody and apprehension. Five, help young Aboriginal moms and dads. Next, yikes, repeal criminal protection for school teachers who use force and get a strategy to reduce learning and work inequalities between Aboriginal folks and the rest. We call for the elimination of poor relation funding for on-reserve study. Within that pen that endorses legislation is the duty to write annual detail on the education, accreditation, and income achievements of your subjects. Lend your jurisdiction, not to the state's small glory, but to justice, such that, he, such that she that writes of you can write of the sacred canopies for stakes. Culturally appropriate, healthfully oriented curricula, treaty honoring legislation will dignify this exercise. This story pleads for support for higher ed, meaning Aboriginal students, for toddler edu education programs. Kweachi sita, kweachi sita, that what in your language is writ acknowledges right, meaning right means speaking our words, preserving what nature made so articulate in Aboriginal languages. Fund such an act as counters the trespass against first languages, a fundamental element of this country's wisdom, tongues and idioms, talk in Wichin, in Naskapi, in standardized syllabics. We call on feds for a commissioner of our languages recommended by us and devoted to reporting on the adequacy of whatever money or support feds put toward our fluency. Colleges and universities, verb, en cha una. Help residential school survivors rebuild the family names stripped from them by fixing status cards, identity papers, documents, and passports for no fee. A tobacco offering first to open dialogue, then a purification with mashkodewashk and gizik. The offices of government awakened by sweetgrass, policy extending our respect to relations, to elders, to words, and circles. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your works on it. So, next up we've got Hamish Hardy. Hamish Hardy is a student and aspiring writer currently completing his final year of high school. He has an interest in literature and art history and will be pursuing post-secondary studies in these subjects. He is involved with the Nanaimo Art Gallery through volunteering and his participation in code switching, the Nanaimo Art Gallery's teen contemporary art collective. Come on up.
Uh, hello. Uh, thank you, Emma, Stephanie, for letting me read. Uh, I'm going to be uh, reading a sort of a short story called um, The Window. My throat was dry as I entered the boss's office for my performance review. I was not looking forward to it. Call me crazy, but I find the idea of having my performance evaluated by a cockroach to be slightly humiliating. How that vermin rose to an administrative position is beyond me. He doesn't even have a degree. Supposedly, he was chosen for the fast-track management program, but I suspect nepotism. He is the most incompetent and ineffective individual I've ever had the misfortune of working with. His staff meetings are painfully dull and typically unfold with him scuttling around the table, occasionally activating a remote that will advance the slides of some inane PowerPoint presentation about the benefits of an unguarded pantry or the volatile and dangerous psychology of pest exterminators. Communication is nigh impossible as he responds to most queries with a disconcerting clicking of the mandibles or a twitch of the antenna. I'm not sure how he even manages to type, but he routinely bombards me with condescending emails about, as he puts it, my depressing lack of motivation or how I should learn to think outside the box. I have toiled under the tarsus of that odious arthropod for years now. My life is a monotonous humdrum, a bland imprisonment in a claustrophobic cubicle, a carpeted cell every bit as oppressive and restricting as iron bars. Decades of corporate drudgery have emasculated me, drained my vitality, and suppressed my individuality. And throughout this bland ordeal, this spiritual castration, I've had to suffer the indignity of being ruled over by literal vermin. I will, however, suffer no longer. Today is the day I take a stand, the day I strike back against the pestilent machine, the day I salvage my pride and assert my dominance, my innate superiority over the verminous beings of this earth. I will accept the consequences of my actions, whatever they may be, but I will no longer wallow in the muck of conformity. Preparations have been made and drastic action will be taken. Gregory the technical writer shall be no more. In his place will be Gregory the warrior. <laughs> my throat was dry as I entered the boss's office for my performance review. Though I was nervous, I was looking forward to it. The room was cramped and oppressively humid. It's as if he enjoys seeing his employees sweat. A few beams of sunlight shone through the blinds of a small window. That irked me. It was a beautiful day, and he, despite not having the capacity to appreciate the refreshing power of natural light, nor the aesthetic qualities of an expansive view, was blessed with the window office. There was no window in my cubicle. Was I not more deserving of one? After a few hours in that gray cube, it was easy to forget my humanity, easy to fall into a monotonous vortex of emails, emails, memos, progress reports, and crushing sameness. Surrounded by nothing but carpet and computers in every direction, by the unhuman sounds of keys clicking, printers whirring, and pagers beeping, how was I to know that I was human? What proof did I have that I was anything more than a machine, a humanoid husk with fingers to type and a mind to obey, or some artless, mass-produced golem with no more agency than a common stapler? Were my notions of individuality and free will just that? Notions? I cast these thoughts from my mind as I stepped further into the office. If there was any doubt of my humanity, my command over my own destiny, it would be dispelled today. The office was dominated by a large oak-paneled desk. 
Behind it was a dark leather chair, ergonomic and probably worth more than my car. It, however, went unused, as the boss situated himself on the dark wood of the desk, resting idly on his foul underbelly. A small chair awaited me, frail and shabby, one that put the guest at a decidedly lower position. His antenna twitched as I approached. About two paces away, I stopped and slid my hand into the breast of my jacket, grasping the can of raid I'd hidden there. He stirred at this, his six loathsome legs skittering slightly. I swallowed. My mouth was arid. I stared into his beady ocelli, and they stared back. Despite their flat monotone, their inexpressive indifference, they were somehow smug, as if he was enjoying himself, daring me, taunting me. I became aware that I was shaking, and so I gripped the insecticide ever tighter, my index finger rolling over the plastic valve. It was a move I'd practiced countless times in my apartment, draw the can from my jacket pocket and aim in one swift, flourishing motion, then, without missing a beat, unleash the toxic spray. Aim for the face, and don't relent until the can supply is exhausted and the pest is completely dredged in the electro-rich compound. Simple. So why then, in that humid office, at the moment of truth, my window of opportunity, did I find myself frozen to the spot? Time stopped. The gray confines of the office fell away. I suddenly became acutely aware of myself, the grinding of my teeth, the fact that I hadn't blinked in minutes, the extreme tensity of my shoulders, the suddenly suffocating heat of my hair. And the sweat, oh the sweat, beads of it ran down my face, my drenched shirt clung to my back and armpits, and puddles of it formed in my shoes. A high ringing filled my ears, and I grew dizzy. At that moment, the insect's mandibles drew back into a new shape, and I had a stunning moment of recognition. I'd have thought it impossible, but there, on that unhuman face, was a smile. It was unmistakable, though really only a mockery of the real thing, and all in all, a very foul, leering grin. A chill ran down my spine, my sweat suddenly icy cold against my skin. His gaze was unrelenting. I could, fe I could feel my grip on the insecticide weakening. It was no use. My hand fell limply from my jacket to my side. The muted office walls hazily rematerialized. My shoulders slumped and I swayed slightly. Feeling close to tears, I sat in the chair and stared at my knees, resigning myself to my performance review. Next, we have Casey Way. Casey Way is an interdisciplinary artist and musician based in Vancouver. She graduated with an MFA from SFU in 2012. Her practice has evolved from filmmaking, Murky Colors 2012, Vader and Sun, Father and Son, and that in Chinese, 2013, into incorporating elements of relational aesthetics in work that cross over between art, music, and the community at large. Um, such as Kingsgate Mall happenings, Chinatown happenings, and Art Rock. In 2016, she began Agony Club, a music and printed matter label that releases material under the framework of the popular esoteric. She also plays in the musical projects Late Spring and Hazy. Casey. <laughs>
five years ago that I tried editing um, for a really long time, but I'm gonna read from this instead because I'm actually doing this now. So, um, there was a lot of info in that introduction, so I'm going to read um, the letter from the editor, which is me, from the uh, first edition of Agony Club, which came out in September 2016, and um, AK01, it's a magazine and mixtape um, where I, in which I invite uh, local and, I guess, non-local um, musicians who have like writing practices and um, visual art practices and visual art artists and writers who have musical practices to um, write or submit something like a visual work or a song or a sound experiment. And uh, yeah, this is the first one. So uh, it requires a little bit of, I guess, intro to the world. A letter from the editor. I don't feel like each issue needs a thematic, but as I am laying this out, I notice the repetition of mirrors, the double image reflections. Perhaps because this is the first issue, I have somehow subconsciously directed a questioning of Agni Club's identity at everyone whom I have asked to contribute. Perhaps it is something we are always asking our ourselves, staring into the mirror until the answer announces itself elsewhere in the music, the artwork, the writing. AK number one is the first of a biannual publication of writing images and sounds. Its origins depends, its origin depends on how far back you'd want to argue. One, Agony Club Records and Books is a material extension of the Art Rock series that I've been curating over the last year at the Astoria Pub. It is a monthly night featuring performers of sounds, visuals, and poetics who move through the vast territories covered by the words art and rock. Things made under this label come from that framework in which exploration and experimentation of the popular esoteric is the criteria and footnote. The popular esoteric or making the popular esoteric comes from one's ambivalence towards popular culture. It is not a space of comfort, not for me at least. Art rock, question mark, is live, intense, a bit messy, but safe. It exists somewhere in the fog between the studio space and the spectacle. Here you are holding the concentrated effort of that energy put into material form. Two, Agony Club is an underground casino from the last Philip Marlowe detective novel by Raymond Chandler, Playback, which he began in 1958. Unfinished at the time of his death, it was completed by Robert B. Parker in 1988. The K of Agony Club as a reference to Rainier Werner Fassbender, whose films embody the idea of the popular esoteric to me, frequently featuring some kind of unheimlich staged performance. AK is also the documentary by Chris Marker on Akira Kurosawa, made in 1985. Three, common definitions of agony include intense physical or mental suffering, the struggle preceding natural death, extreme and prolonged pain. From the Greek origin of agonia, struggle, anguish, from agon, gathering, contest for a prize, from agin, to lead, celebrate. These tensions between life and death, suffering and celebration, agency and urgency, are made tangible when agony is conceptualized, when the thing, music thing, performance thing, book thing, is made irreverently to be revered in its irreverence of itself. And this is the first one, the second one's over there, and the third one's coming out in September. So that's that part of the reading that I'm going to do. And the second part, um, I'm gonna read a essay um, 
from this book, Whitney Houston et al. It's a collection of essays around popular music that I edited um, that Steph is in and a bunch of other writers, um, like one, uh, five, five other writers um, are in from Vancouver. And initially I invited as many people as I could think of to write essays on popular music. Um, but organically, it just so happened that the only people who could turn in the, their work on time were women. So it turns, turns out to be this naturally, um, I guess, feminist collection of writing. And I addressed that in the afterword. But right now I'm going to read um, an essay on my bloody Valentine. Over the last 30 years, through their discography of three studio albums, numerous EPs, mini albums, singles, and compilations, the conclusion that can be reached is, My Bloody Valentine makes transcendental music. They are the canon of shoegaze and have elevated themselves into a state of zen maturation that no other band has reached. After breaking up in 1995, it took a 13-year hiatus for the members to reunite and another five for them to finish and self-release their latest album, MBV, in 2013. Upon reforming, their performance of one of their most popular songs, To Hear Knows When, at the Fuji Rock Festival in 2008, showcases perfectly the intangible serenity and power communicated by their music. When My Bloody Valentine began, it consisted of three members, guitarist, band leader Kevin Shields, and drummer Colm Okoisiog, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, um, met in 1978 at a karate tournament in South Dublin, and soon found singer David Conway, whose vocal style registers as a typical 80s goth wave croon. They sounded like just another member of the New Wave Army until bassist Debbie Googe and guitarist, vocalist, keyboardist Belinda Butcher joined in 1985 and 1987, respectively. The band is often discussed in terms of pre and post Belinda, whose role in the band creates harmony between the hard and soft elements. After the moderate success of their mini-album Ecstasy, Lazy Records, 1987, the band signed with Creation in 1988 and released their you made, me, you made Me Realize EP. The title track is also featured on their first full length, Isn't Anything, out a few months later. Isn't Anything reached number one on the UK independent charts and was greatly praised for its distinct new sound. Layers of soft, prosaic vocals folded through more layers of compressed yet nuanced guitar noise, perfectly mixed into a hard, pulsing rhythm section. The drumming ranges from busy fits of punk showmanship and precision. At their concerts, audience members regularly yell out, Colm, you animal, to simple, simple flutterings as an extension of one's body rhythm slipping into sleep. Isn't anything was simultaneously punk and ambient, intensely romantic and de detachedly cool, with lyrics like, come just to make you happy, shot in the head I can see. I can see it, but I can't feel it. The band was posed for greatness in the independent music world, which at the time was still an emerging industry and less hierarchically regulated than it is today. They achieved that greatness with their follow-up album, Loveless, in 1991. And a footnote, the first time I heard it, I was in a cafe somewhere in Greenwich Village waiting for a friend when I only said came on. I asked the server, a too cool rocker type, what it was, and he looked at me with a smug superiority and let the answer slip as he passed by with his tray in an eye roll. Uh, Greenwich is full of assholes. The introspective familiarity isn't anything teased the listener with on tracks like All I Need, Sue is Fine, and I Can See It But I Can't Feel It, becomes fully sated by Loveless, a masterpiece that is on every reliable critic's top 10 albums of all time. Loveless, for all, all its sorrow, does not indulge in wallowing. With a sound that, it, it, that is 
completely its own, the lush undulations and shredding meat textures invite psychedelic bliss, while intimate forlorn lyrics locate the self in a torturous physicality. Since guitars and vocals swim over each other, the ahs and oohs arc in and out of cognition, disappearing through the tremolo bends and surging keyboards. Their voices are treated with, sorry, their voices are treated like instruments too, layered again and again, the words made to repeat horizontally and vertically. One element of the band's genius is in the post-production with all instruments mixed to achieve a harmonious and sustained event horizon. After Loveless, the band fell apart. Footnote, various tensions, Belinda and Kevin broke up the, and illnesses, Cole was hospitalized, resulted in Cole and Deb leaving the band in 1995 and Belinda leaving in 1997. So after Loveless, the band fell apart and its members moved outward into the world to explore other musical avenues. Colm started a folk psych project, Hope, Sandoval, and the Warm Inventions with Mazzy Starr's frontwoman. Deb played bass in Stone Pony and recently joined Thurston Moore and Steve Shelley in The Best Day. Belinda performed vocals on Dinosaur Jr.'s song I Don't Think and became a flamenco singer and guitarist. Kevin Shields worked on various projects like touring with Primal Scream, the best track on Exterminator is MBV Orchestra, They Move, Kill Em performing with Patti Smith and soundtracking films. In the meantime, mediocre bands started up calling themselves Kevin Shields, the Belinda Butchers, as if doing so would secure them a place in music history, which of course it did. And after two decades of particles, atoms, and molecules coalescing, My Bloody Valentine finished and self-released the third studio album, MVV, in 2013. Where could a band go after making an album that felt as complete as Loveless? How would they go about picking it up back after so long? Loveless ends with Soon, a six-minute song that loops seemingly into infinity. The opening track of MBV, She Found Now, picks up, where, picks up exactly where Soon trails off, as if running into that estranged lover again after so much time, 22 years to be exact, only to find that nothing has changed. The words of one critic stick, despite the enormous pressure and incredibly high expectations, MBV does not disappoint. Now completed trilogy, the three studio albums can be viewed in this framework. Isn't Anything was a catalyst for Loveless, which delivered songs arcing through the band's tumultuous relationship with their label and with each other. And after a torturous hiatus, MVV is the resolution. The Lost Ship at Sea has returned with the majestic grace of experience. As a whole, the album sounds more polished than the previous two. While the textures still retain their mass, the edges sound cleaner, less fuzzy. Vocals sit higher up in the mix than before. The romantic, ambiguous lyrics ebb and flow even more abstractly, announcing a new level of being. Floating for 20-some years in the ether had advanced their sound into a new space. MBV is a band evolving into post-human form. From She Founds Now to Who Sees You, the devout fan is treated to that same loveless intensity. Desire, love, loss, grace, tenderness, and acceptance are once again expressed in a way that reassures the listener that the band had not lost its identity. After Who Sees You, there comes a sweet reprieve of Is This and Yes, a song that features only Belinda's vocals and synths, with a soft hum thumping as the back backbone metronome, a quiet meditation through which she is the one and only focus. From Isn't Anything, No More Sorry achieves a similar effect through the prominence of her noticeably unlayered vocal track that sits above the song's vulnerably stripped bare instrumentation, a rare glimpse into a narrative played out as she delivers harrowing vague lines to a filthy daddy. Is This and Yes is anything but the aftermath of a devastating encounter showcasing Belinda for the first time serenely alone in a cyborgian state. Her voice is an apparition of a goddess from fair far away celestial synth trails. 
After this divine cleanse, the next songs unfold a new awakening. Belinda's otherworldly coups continue on If I Am over gauzy post-wall guitars and a bubbling drum shuffle. Deb's bass, Deb's bass drives the bouncy and cheerful new you, on which Colm displays the lighter side, his tambourine jangling as Belinda's signature oohs and ahs slide perfectly through. For all, for all its breeziness, the song displays intricately crafted mid-album songwriting, designed to feel effortless before a drastic change. In another way, suddenly revs fast and forward with laser bagpipe guitar screeches and Colm's restrained yet powerful drumming mixed up front. MBV finishes with two profoundly confident rhythmic looping tracks featuring only Kevin's voice and sequenced guitar textures folding in and out like waves, crashing against drums that are so precise that they may or may not be a machine. Although the end of the album sounds like sketches, these are the tastiest and most telling bits that cement the, the advancement of My Bloody Valentine's direction. The tracks no longer belong to our world dictated by time and space, but to a Zen state where, the presence, where their presence in the present is continually renewed. The final tracks of this album confidently and concretely state the band's alwaysness as a promise. My Bloody Valentine keeps its promises. It has just taken a long time for them to do so. It has been over three years now since the release of, of MVV, and it did not take long after their world tour for Shields to announce work on a fourth. When that will be released is as good as anyone's guess. In the meantime, listening to the band's discography in different ways forms all kinds of new you. Ooh. Consider the final two songs of, of MBV as a new direction, but also listen to them against Glider, a 10-minute lovesick loop that grows and grows like nausea, like sex, a psychedelic experience of repetition. Those last 30 seconds of To Hear Knows When swerves and swirls and can fade perfectly into the shimmering takeoff of Moon Song, the convulsive tremble of No More Sorry, or the mysterious warble of Rare Demos, Demos Song, which is only available on YouTube, uploaded by a user Camilla Morelli. It sounds authentically like them, but the comment section is loaded with disbelievers and knowing know-it-all fanatics. Both Isn't Anything and Loveless start with snare hits on the opening tracks, but on MBV, this recognizable trait is withheld until the third song, the most Loveless-esque of the album. The question posed by the title Isn't Anything is contemplated and processed over the next two albums or two decades to be answered by the second to last track of the band's work, Nothing Is. The lowercase lettering of, of MBV irreverently ignores the hierarchy of grammar. As the music moves towards enlightenment, it shifts from the emotional violence of the past towards freedom from being without love. To elaborate on the three-word review that MBV does not disappoint, no one really wanted another loveless, but we couldn't imagine anything else that could measure up. The fact that MBV isn't and does is more gratifying and reassuring than anything else I've experienced. And I just realized after reading this that if you don't like my bloody Valentine or you don't really know what I'm talking about, that this was, must have been really boring for you. So I'm sorry. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Nice. Oh, I don't think you can use that. Okay, cool. Excellent. That's all the readers for tonight. Thanks, Casey, for uh, encouraging us to listen to My Bloody Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, what can we tell you? There is... We're recording the event this evening. Part of the Lit 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 um, project is to record all of our events and then put them on the pot on a podcast. So that will be available on iTunes in a couple of weeks if you want to experience this once again another time. Uh, yeah, stick around, <laughs> hang out, uh, and thanks for coming out again. Thank you.